Welcome to the HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. This event was recorded live at the Feakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Enjoy. So, good morning. Well, technically it's afternoon, I suppose, but it feels like morning to me. <laughs> well, I've just about caught up on my sleep from, uh, from reading all those wonderful debut novels that come my way. Uh, I, I have, I think the best job of any connected to this festival. Um, reading the books that are submitted for uh, inclusion in the new blood panel is fantastic experience. I get a chance to hear new voices, to, to read about the concerns of writers entering this genre for the first time. I can see how tastes are developing, how different directions are developing in the genre, and I can identify the people I need to push under the bus. Because, frankly, we've had enough new blood by now, haven't we? <laughs> There's enough of them out there. And still they come at me. <laughs> so, here's this year's cream of the crop. Starting at the end, we have Ben McPherson, his book A Line of Blood. Next to Ben is Renee Knight, whose book Disclaimer uh, was probably the first book of, that I read this year of the New Blood submissions that, uh, that grabbed me. And when I tell you that was back in, I think, last September or October, you have an idea of the, the, the length of time and the volume of books that go into this process. Then we have Lucy Ribchester, and finally we have Claire McIntosh. Got two Macs here, but uh, they're not the Scots. It's Lucy who's the Scot this time. I don't just pick Scottish writers, you know. <laughs> it's, just, it's just that we're awfully good at this, you know. <laughs> In the same way that we're awfully good at politics. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I'm going to tell you a little about, uh, about the authors up here this morning, uh, and then they're going to talk to you themselves about their work and how they got here and what their future holds. I'm going to start off with Ben over there on the other side of the stage. It's easy to identify because he's the man. Oh. <laughs> And Ben's a television producer, a director, and a writer. He studied modern languages at King's College, Cambridge. Well, forgive him for that, for going to the wrong place. Uh, he worked for many years in film and television production. And from 1998 to 2007, he worked as a, a director and producer for the BBC. But he's got a slightly different life now, as he lives in Oslo with his wife and son. He's lived in Norway since 2012, and he speaks the language fluently. That's just a bit like being Scottish again, because we all say things like Kirk and Ganheim. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I can, I can make myself understand. Yeah, yeah, it's the same. I mean, there's so much Norwegian in Scots and Scots in Norwegian. Yeah. But so you just speak Scots with a broad accent. And pretty think much, yeah. <laughs> just make it a bit more Germanic and yeah. it all works out. Yeah. Um, and uh, so he works on a newspaper called The Foreigner. And he's also a columnist for Aftenposten, which is Norway's leading quality daily newspaper. His book, A Line of Blood, was described by The Guardian as an impressive slice of domestic suspense set in the less salubrious end of London's Finsbury Park. <laughs> I, did, I didn't know there was a salubrious end of Finsbury Park. I, I, I push it slightly. <laughs> I make it less salubrious than it was already. But, um, no, it's a, there are, there's a bit of West London in there too, I think, probably. So next to Ben is Renee Knight, whose novel Disclaimer uh, is the one 
I'm going to start that again because my <laughs> mouth is not working properly because it's too early in the morning. Um, I'll tell you a wee bit about Renee first. She's, she's directed arts documentaries for the BBC. She's done script writing course. She's written scripts that have been commissioned but not made. We've all been there. Um, and has gone through the, the Faber Academy uh, and is already adapting uh, Disclaimer for 20th Century Fox. So all that screenwriting work's finally paying off. Thank goodness. <laughs> so the disclaimer of the title is the one we're all familiar with. It's that bit at the beginning of the, the book on the verso page that nobody ever looks at. The bit that says, this book is a work of fiction and the characters bear no resemblance to anyone living or dead, except that in this case, they do. Uh, the New York Times described it as an outstandingly clever and twisty tale that's been perfectly engineered to make heads spin. Claire McIntosh, sorry, sorry. I'm in a terrible state this morning. I wasn't even late in bed last night. It's disgraceful. I think it's old age. That's why I've got the glasses on and that, you know. It's shocking. Lucy is next with the Hourglass Factory. Lucy was born in Edinburgh and educated at St Andrews University. I come from Fife. St Andrews is nominally in Fife. But we like to think of it as a corner of a foreign field that is forever England. <laughs> She, she's won a Scottish Book Trust Award and her short story, The Glassblower's Daughter, was shortlisted for the Costa Short Story Award. She has variously worked for Al Jazeera and swum with icebergs. And she also writes about dance. So there's lots of interesting possibilities there for crime fiction. Her book deals with, I suppose, suffragettes and the case of the missing trapeze artist with a cross-dressing female reporter as sleuth. The Guardian said, the characters are larger than life and the themes from politics, police work and journalism to circus life, snake charming and fetishism in what is at its core a detective novel. Ribchester provides the dual structure, mounting suspense and roster of suspicious characters. So, finally, Claire McIntosh with I Let You Go. Claire's an author, feature writer, columnist, former police officer. She's written for The Guardian, Sainsbury's Magazine, Good Housekeeping, The Green Parent, WI Life, and many other national publications. <laughs> That's not the highlight of my career, to be fair. I'd be very proud of writing for WI Life if they'd have me. <laughs> She's the founder of the Chipping Norton Literary Festival and lives in the Cotswolds. As I say, she spent 12 years in the police force working in CID in custody as a public order commander and has drawn on her experiences there for the psychological thriller, I'll let you go. It starts with a hit-and-run accident inspired by a real case where a child died when she was a police officer in Oxford. And Claire was a police officer, not the child, obviously. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I'm usually better at this. <laughs> the Daily Mail said it has an astonishing intensity that drags you in and never, ever lets you go. And I have to say, as a killer reveal halfway through, that I guarantee will leave you gasping. So, first thing I'm going to ask about this morning is what drew you to crime? Start with you, Ben. To be honest, I didn't know I was writing a crime novel when I started out. And Did the dead body not give you a clue? Well, you see, <laughs> I, I was naive. I knew I needed a dead body, and I knew that it had to be there from the start, and I knew that it had to be unravelled, but I still didn't really realise that that was the genre I was walking towards. Um, 
I knew really how it finished and then worked back from there. And I guess by the end of the first draft, I sort of guessed that I was writing a crime novel, but I was still, you know, I, I took a bit of kind of pushing and persuading actually to realize that um, because I was, I was very new at it and didn't really, I suppose, know where I was going exactly. It took me a little time to understand. And can you tell us a bit about the novel itself? Well, I mean, again, when I describe it, it sounds like a crime novel, I think. It's about a... Well, it is a crime novel. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, that's the thing, so you know. Just going to just all no, of it. I, I mean, it now seems incredible to me that I didn't understand that, that, would, that that's what I was doing, because it's about a man who lives in London, one of the worst areas of Finsbury Park, as you say, um, an area the locals call Crappy, which is half of uh, Finsbury Park back was Crappy Rubsniff. They, there's, it's a sort of very down-at-heel area. They are a kind of middle-class aspiring family, but they're not doing well. They're struggling, really, I guess. And one summer's evening, he and his 11-year-old son go into the next-door house um, looking for the cat. And inside the next-door house, they find the body of the neighbour in the bathtub, dead with an erection. He fails to prevent his son from seeing this, so his first concern is, how do I get my son through this? How do I, you know, we, I've just presented my son with the most traumatic thing you could possibly look at. He's about to enter puberty, he's about to um, go through all these changes himself. And, you know, here we have an image which combines sex and death and possibly suicide, possibly murder. So that's the situation that he's presented with at the start of the novel, and still, I didn't really understand that, that was a crime book. <laughs> I'm stupid. It took me a while. <laughs> Obviously not stupid, because the, the novel works itself out in a very interesting and, and complex way. No, I mean, I'm, I, I, but I think that it took me a while to understand that the conventions of the crime novel are actually exactly what I needed to be able to look at the psychology of that family. What I wanted to do was write about love, and you can't really write about happiness. Ha books about happiness are uninteresting, you know, that's the point at which you have to sort of close down the narrative. But books about unhappy people allow you to write about love. And so really what I was trying to do was write about this small, unhappy family that was struggling to get along and where the unhappiness comes to a head, I suppose, through the crime that they then have to solve. And so for the family, the crime has to be solved and they have to find a way of moving beyond this terrible thing that's happened. And once I'd accepted that it was a crime novel, it got a lot easier to write it. <laughs> yeah. And so it, it, all, it all weaves around the dynamics of, of this small, tight family. I mean, it's a very, very small family. It's just three people. They're in a tiny house. Um, they're, everything is very intense. You know, it's all very small. And I think that, again, was very important because it puts everything under a great deal of pressure. You know, there's no privacy in the house. And that becomes a big theme as well within the whole thing. You know, three people... Who, are, who just don't have any kind of um, space from each other, I guess. And again, that's, you know, they're, they're in a sort of pressure cooker, and that, again, I think, is the sort of environment that can lead to the terrible thing that has happened in the house next door. Yeah, and it's very claustrophobic, and there's a, a, a real sense of, of secrets, and yet even, even in this, this tiny space where everyone's on top of each other and no one seems on the face of it to have any private space, people nevertheless manage to carve out areas of secrecy yes, and, and yeah, hiddenness 
And I think that was, for, for me, was one of the great intriguing things about the book, was the, the way we, we gradually find our way into those hiddennesses. But I think also one of the things about marriage, which it's easy to forget, is that it, a marriage is two individuals coming together, but it's also the idea that you can never fully know someone, I think, is you shouldn't fully know someone. You know, there should be things about another person that you don't know, but then there are, if you just sort of glide into this stuff, if you never examine your reasons for marrying, your reasons for having a child, and which these characters haven't done that, you, end up, you can end up in this terrible situation where suddenly someone does the most terrible thing. And uh, in this case, I think it's probably no mystery that the, the body in the house next door has been murdered question is really who's done it and why. And that's a question you'll have to read the book to find the answer to, because we're not going to tell you. <laughs> Renee, what about you? What, what drew you toward the, the, the world of, wonderful world of crime? Well, it's interesting, because actually, like Ben, I didn't think I was writing a crime novel, and actually, even when I got to the end, I didn't think of it as a crime novel. I mean, there is, there is a crime in it. Um, I suppose I've always, I'm always interested in the sort, of, the sort of underbelly of life, really, and particularly, I suppose, what has been dubbed domestic noir. I'm interested in that sense of, you know, a home which can be a place where the best things that might happen to you can happen, but also the very worst things. So it's quite a, it can potentially, um, it can be a very sort of destabilizing place. Um, and my book is basically about a woman who comes across herself in a novel. So she's tucked up in bed at home, safe, picking up a book, it's one of her, you know, to lull her into sleep, and she hits a passage which she recognises is about her and about something which she hadn't told anybody about, even her husband and her son. So the people who feel they know her better than anyone else, she's kept this thing from them. And the book's told from her point of view and alternating with the person who's written the book, who is an elderly, well, a retired we don't teach her. Um, so, and it's how those two, you sort of have to work out really what it is those two, what, it, what the connection is, and what it is she has kept secret and why, really. And privacy, I mean, it's interesting what Ben was saying. I sort of feel there are sort of overlaps, actually, with our books about, I mean, my, one of the themes is very much about privacy and how much right an individual has to hold on to things. And, you know, if you're in a relationship with your children, with your partner, how much right do they know? Do they have to know everything about you? And what things do you have to tell them? What do you not? And you know, it's complicated, I think, isn't it? And then do you use that sort of idea of the, the close closeness of the family unit uh, into which this book is is dropped, uh, and and the effects that that could have, and the effects of of the narrator to try and, and prevent it, uh, basically taking a hammer and and chisel to the family life that's been built mm. up over the years with nobody having any sense that she has that kind of secret. Mm. And of course, you're also dealing with, uh, with unreliable narratives as well. It's who do you trust in your book? Yes. Who does the reader trust? Who do they trust and who do they like and what they think they know about a particular person, yes. So there you go, lots of intrigue, lots of uh, strangeness going on there. I, I, I found it very... Um, <coughs> I, I, it really sucked me in, in that sense of, we all have secrets. Every one of us in this room has something they're ashamed of. We all have something 
we would, would be embarrassed or, 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 or absolutely destroyed, but if our partner or our, our children or our best friend knew, sometimes they're really small and insignificant things, but they loom large mm. in our minds. Mm. And that sense of shame is a very powerful driver, I think, for, mm. for the crime novel, for any kind of novel, really. Um, so if you all would like to take a moment there, think about <laughs> 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 your shame. <laughs> just, just, just to think about your secret shame. <laughs> And just to think what it would be like if someone started writing about it in a novel that you found on your bedside table. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of nervous laughter now, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. Oh, yes. So, Lucy, what drew you to the world of crime? Don't tell me, you didn't think you were writing a crime novel. <laughs> well, I was going to say... Anybody in this room writing a crime <laughs> novel? I don't want to jump on a bandwagon here, but The Hourglass Factory actually started out as a play, and it wasn't a crime play. Um, I was on the Royal Court's Young Writers course, and um, I wanted to write about feminism and music halls. That, those were the two kind of starting points. And um, just kind of making that connection that the, the sort of music hall heyday, the Edwardian era, was at um, the same time the suffragettes were going about their most militant activities was the kind of, I suppose, catalyst for, for the story there. Um, but then, you know, the play didn't work out. I kind of, I, you know, I sort of realised I maybe didn't, or, or going down the playwriting route wasn't really necessarily going to be for me. And I went back to the, the type of fiction that I liked to read when I, was, um, when I was younger. And that was crime. I was a complete Agatha Christie addict. So I thought, I wonder if I can look at this and see if I can bring out a crime story and use that as the lens to kind of um, explore the kind of darker activities of the suffragettes and bring on board some of the, you know, the other things. I suppose it was the, trying to put together the research um, that, was, that was really the driver for that and have a kind of, you know, a coherent um, uh, plot that I was, I was really, really invested in. And so it was, it was just that, about that thing about going back to the like I say, like the type of books that I like to read, um, I suppose, that, that drove me to crime. So, <laughs> so, so, so what, what's at the heart of, of your book? Tell us a little bit about the book itself. The Hourglass Factory. Um, well, it's, uh, I, I guess it's a murder mystery. Frankie George, who's a reporter, um, who, uh, being a, a woman reporter at that time, has been kind of uh, relegated to the ladies' page of the newspaper that she writes for and kind of instructed to write about um, uh, fashion and gossip, that sort of thing. That's really not Frankie's thing, and she's really desperate to get her uh, teeth into a proper story. Um, she gets sent to interview a trapeze artist suffragette to do a kind of profile piece, a sort of lurid profile piece, in essence, on sort of force-feeding in prisons and things. But Frankie realises that there's something else going on um, in Ebony's life, and she... Um, she begins kind of taking an interest in her, and then when Ebony disappears in the middle of a performance at the, the London Coliseum, then that's really the kind of um, trigger for Frankie getting involved in trying to find out what's happened to her, um, and is it connected to a couple of murders that have taken place. And we all talk about, you know, research for, for crime fiction. I mean, mostly that means you go and find a friendly cop or you find a friendly forensic scientist. Um, but you couldn't really just turn, pick up, lift up any stone and find a friendly trapeze artist or a <laughs> music hall star or um, someone into Victorian fetishism. So, so was, was there a lot of, I mean, did you, did you struggle to, to put together some of the, the strands of this book? Yeah, I mean, I find friendly librarians, those are like the, the historical researchers' <laughs> best friends. Um, I'm going into like, the newspaper archives. I have a lot of fun, like, um, 
doing the sort of, I suppose more like the, the ephemera or the objects side of research. So I really like going into museums. I really love going into national archives and looking at some of the prison records of suffragettes that have been taken to prison and the police reports and the prison diaries, um, that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, I suppose it is, you do just have to, some point, I mean, because you can read and read and read. You can read history books, newspaper articles, you can, you know, primary and secondary sources. And at the end of the day, you are going to have to make stuff up. And because, well, A, because you're not going to, be able to know everything about that era, but also because maybe that won't necessarily, putting a lot of historical facts into a book won't necessarily provide a, a story, and you want to tell a story, and that's the, the most important thing. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I had a lot of fun doing it, but I guess I also had a, a lot of fun um, taking that leap of imagination um, into the story yeah. as well. That's a great read. I mean, I, I loved... Uh love to see the sort of shadier side of the suffragettes because we, we tend now to think yeah. of the suffragettes as these sort of noble women mm. out there mm. fighting the good fight so we could all have the vote. Um, but actually the, the real, the, the story behind the story seems is, is very interesting, mm. I think. Yeah. Um, because, of course, these, these were not just sort of um, heroic angels. They were, they were women with, uh, with all the, the, the passions and the fears that we're, we're all prey to. And I think it's, it's useful to be reminded of that in, in the sort of the world of, of, of historical novel. Sure. Like they, we do, you're right, I think we do glorify them now and look back on the suffragettes because of um, the achievement that, or, well, be careful how I word it, but like because of, of, of what was achieved. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there was lots of different factions at that time, and, and that kind of interested me. I mean, I've always been interested in things like gang stories and, and mafia-type things, and the, the faction in the, the women's movement, the, you know, the people who were extremely militant, people who were militant but wanted to make sure that, you know, human life was protected all the time. Then there was people who were, um, you know, would commit acts of vandalism but nothing that would, uh, you know, not going to... There was just, just different sorts of groups and that kind of really interested me, that sort of questioning that level of, like, how far would you go and how far is too far and where's the line? Mm. So it's great, you've sort of lifted that idea and then applied it to the rest of the plot. <laughs> How far did you go? <laughs> yeah. How far is too far? Yeah. So, um, and it's, it's also, I think, a great, great fun. I mean, it's just, you clearly, it's just huge energy in the book and you clearly, the, you. the enjoyment you had from the book, I think, comes through in, in, the, in the writing of it. Thanks very much. I mean, I, I tried, one, I, you know, I, I guess when you approach writing your first novel, you know it's going to be a kind of long process. So, yeah, I guess just wanted to make sure that it was fun for me going yeah. back over edits and yeah. <laughs> redrafts. And, yeah, I think that's, it's, it's, you're right there. It's, it's often easy to lose sight of the fact that we, we started writing because it gave us pleasure. So, <laughs> 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 so Claire, if I can just turn to you now. What, what drew you to writing about crime as opposed to fighting crime? I know. Well, like, as you said earlier, I spent 12 years in, in the police, which in retrospect was probably a bit of a, an exaggerated way to research a crime novel. I probably didn't <laughs> have to quite, go quite that far. Um, but I, yeah, so then when I started writing, I think it was, it was quite a natural thing to do. I'd spent 12 years telling other people's crime stories, and now I wanted to make one up myself. So you went and founded a literary festival. I did, yeah. I went and found a literary festival just as a bit of procrastination. <laughs> so what, um, what, what is, tell us a bit about the book. What, what lies at the heart of the book? What was it you, you wanted to... To deal with. I wanted to um, explore perception, so I did know I was writing a crime novel um, right from the start. Um, <laughs> Finally! Um, it starts, starts with a hit and run, and it was a, a hit and run that, um, that, that kills a child in, mm. in the book. And you mentioned that it's a real-life case, and it's not, it's not that story. I, I haven't no. written this family's story, and, and um, 
uh, although I am in touch with that family. Um, it was, um, what happened was this, this hit and run happened in Oxford and I found myself profoundly affected by the fact that nobody came forward to admit what they'd done, that everybody really in the city knew who had done it, um, but there wasn't enough evidence to convict this person. And so that now, 15 years later, there is still somebody who wakes up every day knowing that they've done that and lives their life as, as though they hadn't. Um, and I became, I think, slightly obsessed with what that must be like to, to do that. And then I equally became just as affected by the fact that there was a mother who had lost a child. And I, I just couldn't, I couldn't imagine what that would feel like. You know, I was 23 and mm -hmm. this, this terrible thing had happened to this family. And I, I just thought, how do you survive that? Um, and then about, uh, I suppose, 10, 12 years after that, uh, I lost my own child in very different circumstances. And so I was immediately sort of put back to, to thinking about grief and how trauma affects you. And, and you think that you won't be able to survive something and then actually you do. But what it does is it colours everything that you then do. It, it changes your relationships and it changes the decisions that you make. And, um, and so those two things sort of came together to create the characters in I Let You Go. And I think uh, the way that uh, those events gripped you has something that you communicate to the reader in the grip of the book. And this is one of those books, all of these books are like this actually, but once you start, it's very hard to put down. It, it was one of those ones that I kept, these books, you know, the ones where you go, I'll just read another chapter. And then you wake up because you've smacked yourself in the face with the book. <laughs> <laughs> and the page is sticking to your face. You, know, you have to peel it off and you, you have this horrible feeling that when you look in the mirror, the words are going to be there. <laughs> These cheap publishers that they use, you know. Um, so all all of these had that had that effect on me. But uh, I have to say, that I think the, the point in the middle of your book where there is this reveal, and it just turns everything on its head. Everything you thought you knew is not what you thought you knew. It, and and then I sort of that definitely was. It was like two o'clock in the morning or something. I'm thinking, oh damn, I was going to go to sleep. I knew this. I could see from the from the print and the, the, the layout that they were coming up to sort of end of part one, as it were. And I'm thinking, oh no, I can't stop now. <laughs> so and that's and that's you know, as a reader, that's what I want want books to do to me. I want you know the way all of you have have played on my desire to go to sleep and and, and dispelled it. And that, that's that's what we all want, isn't it? That's why we that's why we read anything. And particularly why we read crime novels, because they have that ability to make us care so much about the outcome for the characters. And that's what drives us. It's not really, we don't, we don't really want to know who done it, but it's not really about finding the answer to the puzzle. It's finding out what happens to these people who populate these novels, finding out their outcomes, their fates. And of course, the best kind of crime novels are the ones that leave you at the end thinking, how do these people go on living their lives now? How do they move forward? But while I leave you both, Pondering on that, I'm going to ask our panel how they first, how, how they, what, the, what their road to publication was. How, how was it? Do you, do, you want, do you want to start, Renee? Um, well, mine was years ago, as you said, I worked in television documentaries and I stopped when my, I had kids, stopped working for a bit and then when the kids were at work, at school, work, at school full time. <laughs> Up those chimneys. <laughs> I then had time to write. <laughs> that's, that's what it's like in London now. They still send them down the mine at five. No, and I, to be honest, by then it was too... I don't think I could have gone back into television. It had been too long. The technology had changed. And I, so I started writing scripts initially because it felt closest to what I'd done in television. 
And I didn't, I mean, this was about 10 years ago, I just didn't have the confidence then, actually, to write a novel. Um, so I wrote the scripts, I wrote about, I suppose I wrote about four, um, never adapted a novel, they were all the original ideas, and I did manage to get an agent, and I did, as you say, get a couple of commissions. But actually, I read books. I mean, I go to the cinema, but I don't read scripts. I read books. I love books. I always have. Um, as a child, you know, I read and always loved books. And then I wrote a few short stories, which I really enjoyed doing. Didn't show them to anyone. And then I wrote a novel before this one, um, which didn't get published. And I got, a, I got an agent. I got a literary agent through that. And she sent it out, and it did the rounds. Didn't get published. But it did, I think nothing's wasted, it did give me the idea for the second book. Um, because it was a little bit, there were sort of moments from my adolescent in it involving a friend of mine, who is still a very good friend of mine, but lives abroad. And I realised, I began to think, God, this book, what if it did get published? And I haven't even told her that I'm writing a book. <laughs> How awful that would be. And so it was a bit, it's a bit like... Claire, that sort of what if this? So you sort of you have to get into the skin of what would that be like if that happened? And I think that did give me the impetus for the second book, um, the idea. And yes, it was a sort of long road, but I did. When the first book didn't get published, I did know that I would still carry on writing. I did think if nothing ever gets published, I will still write. Is your friend still speaking to you? She is. <laughs> Excellent. Resolved. She took a very long time to read that first novel then. I was so, it was that anxiety when I was waiting for her to come back and say, it's okay, it's fine. Thank you. Lucy, what was, what was your... Well, was like I say, Hourglass Factory started out as a play and I very kind of quickly realised that that wasn't the right format for her, that wasn't a direction that I wanted to go into writing-wise and, and like Renee, realised that actually I really enjoy reading books and so probably should you know, um, try and write something that I would maybe like to read. And, um, and so I started working on it and uh, kind of uh, bashed out, very, I didn't know what I was doing at all, I bashed out a very ropey first draft, sent it out, had a little bit of interest from agents but it was on the sort of rewrite it completely kind of thing and maybe try these things and so that was it so I worked on it for a little while and then um, I began working with my current agent uh, I think it was in 2012 and she was giving me really 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 detailed really really great advice in the middle of that process of working with her then I, I um, received a Scotch Book Trust New Writers Award and that was really kind of a big uh, you know a massive confidence boost and the Scottish book just are great. They're just like guardian angels. They really look after their little kind of new writers, little ducklings, and and really like push you to uh, push you forward to try and achieve what you want to achieve. And um, and yeah, about a year after that, then the book was ready to go on submission, and and that was it. And then Claire Claire Hayes, Simon and Schuster, his wonderful editor, really kindly bought it. Um, so yeah, but it took about probably about five years in total from me sitting down and thinking, oh, I want to write this as a as a crime novel to it actually being sold. Yeah. I mean, it's a, long, it's a long road. It's a long, tough mm -hmm. road to that first, that first novel. Yeah, and I think, like Renee, I realised at some point, it was after receiving the New Writers Award, I'd start, I started writing short stories round about the same time, probably shortly before I got the New Writers Award, but I continued um, throughout that year to, to focus on short stories when the novel was like out being looked at by my agent. And I think I realised... Um, sort of around about that point that actually even if the novel didn't work out then I would still keep writing and that was actually it was just something that was really nice that I could balance with my day job and mm. or day or mm -hmm. evening jobs as it were. Um. Yeah. I mean one of, um, one of the things my, I remember my agent sort of, I was having a conversation recently and she was saying that uh, the difference between the writers who eventually go on to get a deal and the ones that don't is usually the willingness to work hard 
okay. to take that first draft and not 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 go. Well, I'm not rewriting it. It's perfect. It's wonderful. <laughs> um, and, but the writers who will who will write something not once, not twice, but three or four or five times, and they listen to what's the, the, the advice that's being given them. Of course, the concomitant of that, the other side of that, is that you have to trust the person who's giving you the mm -hmm. advice. Sometimes if someone look, looks at your book and they make suggestions and that you, you immediately feel that's just wrong, 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 mm -hmm. wrong, wrong for me, then that's sometimes the time where hard though it is in those situations to walk away from mm -hmm. somebody who's in the business and who's interested in you. Sometimes you just have to walk away because it's not in your best interests as a writer, it's not in the best interests of the book. So it's, it's, it's a two-way thing. It's about, it's about you being willing to, to work and to listen to the lessons that you're being offered. But it's also about you finding someone who understands the way your mind works, who understands the kind of book you want to write. And I, I remember in my early days, um, the first time I, I met with Julia Wisdom, who was my editor at HarperCollins for many years, and in that very first meeting she said to me, I have no desire to write a book. And I thought, thank you, God. <laughs> the worst kind of editor is the one who wants to write a book and can't. So they think they'll just write yours instead. <laughs> so anyway, sorry. Uh, what, what, was, what, was, what was your road, Claire? How did you come to publication? I, um, I, I sort of started writing by default, really. I, I, I always liked writing, and I was probably one of the few police officers that actively enjoyed paperwork and used to try and make my, uh, make my witness statements as creative as possible. You know? <laughs> are, you, are you sure you, you were walking down the road? Were you not sauntering, maybe, with a, a, a little bit? So I, you know, I, used to, I used to really enjoy that. And then, um, you could probably have made pocket money by offering to do other guys' paperwork. You know? I, I could have done, yeah, I could have done. Um, so what happened was I, um, I started blogging, and that was the first bit of writing I did, really, and I was just writing a personal blog, uh, which just, it just got, it got picked up by the Times um, in a tiny little mention, um, and it suddenly meant I had a huge number of followers on this blog, and it was the first time ever that um, anyone had sort of, that I realised that people might want to read what I was writing. So it was a, a real sort of pivotal moment. And so I was, then, I was then writing for an audience rather than just for me. Right. And I really enjoyed that. And from that, I was offered a column, um, and I became a columnist, which was really exciting. And so I thought, well, if I could do that, maybe I could write for magazines. And so it was sort of by stealth, started writing features, all under a different name, because I was still in the police, and I was quite candid with what I was writing. I was writing about depression and grief and sex and marriage and all sorts of things. Didn't really want the chief constable reading them. <laughs> didn't, um, didn't want some of the criminals I was dealing I was dealing with a lot of protesters. Didn't particularly want them reading about, you know, how I felt about my children or my husband. Um, and so I, I led this sort of dual identity for about a year uh, where I was a sort of a, a sort of pseudo-journalist um, by night and a police officer by day. Um, and started thinking about writing fiction. And so I thought I would take a career break and I would see if I can make a living out of writing, which isn't the easiest thing to do. And I would write this book and I would just see what, hap what would happen. And so I took a two-year career break and I was due back in July 2013. Um, and, in yeah, and, and in June 2013, um, uh, Lucy Malagoni at Little Brown bought my book and so I handed in my notice. Fantastic. You must have been sort of sweating a little bit as the as the deadline drew near. I was I was a bit worried about yeah having to put a uniform back on again. The problem with freelancing is you eat quite a lot of biscuits. I wasn't entirely sure I'd be able to put it back on again. 
That's it. Gotta get a deal, gotta get a deal, gotta get a deal. Can't get into my uniform. <laughs> <laughs> ben, how was it for you? I mean, it was a long process, very long process. I left the BBC, I guess, in 2007. And then we went to Norway. We were, my wife is Norwegian. We thought, we'll have our child in Norway. It's a great place to have a child, um, great health service, and we'll be near her family. And we'll be there for six months. We both gave up our jobs, planning to you know, come back and do something similar. And then she got ill. She's fine now, but she was ill. And so we couldn't come back. And suddenly we were living in Norway, and I was a full-time parent, really, and carer. And for quite a long time, just didn't work. And during that time, I guess after about three years, I, this idea for a novel, it was, it was triggered by this realization that when you have a child, um, there's a whole lot of stuff that you've just let slip past you that you suddenly have to take an interest in. And I started to get really interested in, I think when I was first writing it, my son was two, uh, childhood anger, you know, and um, why children get angry and whether it's a real thing or not a real thing. And that kind of acted as a trigger for me, I guess. And so I wrote the first four chapters, and then we needed money, and so I started... I went back to the BBC for a while, and I was commuting from Oslo, which I don't recommend to anyone. It's a terrible <laughs> existence. But I went back for three years, two years, and I couldn't write during that time. Um, and then we had this strange thing. We're on our wedding anniversary, which was on the 22nd of July uh, in 2011. There was a bomb attack in Oslo followed by mass shooting on Utøya, the island nearby with the summer youth camp. And I'd been feeling very, very um, resentful of Norway, not really wanting to live there anymore. And suddenly this country where I was living was attacked. And I was, it was a very strange moment because you suddenly think there's something here that really makes me angry. And I, feel, I felt very kind of personally angry about it and realized that I'd actually kind of by stealth become a lot more Norwegian than I'd realized. And I just made me think, I want to stop doing what I'm doing. And I covered then the trial for this small internet newspaper that you talked about a year later, um, unpaid. But it was, I think what it did for me, I mean, it, what it did for me was give me a discipline of writing. I mean, it was a horrible trial to cover, and you saw both the very best and very worst of human behavior there. And I had no real preparation for it at all. But I think that... What it did give me was just the habit of sitting down every day to write. And when that was over, Charlotte, who was wonderful, just said, you know, if you want to write your novel, I think you should do it now. And I did, and that got me started. And then I found an amazing agent, rewrote my novel twice for her, found an amazing editor, Julie Wisdom, rewrote my novel twice for her. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, they were... For me, rewriting seems to be the thing that I do, and that seems to be where I write the novel, really, I guess. Mm. Mm. Uh, although, you know, with one novel under your belt, it's a bit difficult to say, this is my process. But, that's, okay. but it seems to me to be the thing where I, I find the novel. And so, you know, the, the rewriting was the thing where I really just had to knuckle down and do it, and knuckle down and do it, and knuckle down and do it. And, you know, I'm glad that I did, but it was the, you're right, it's the thing that's really, really hard to do. All of you out there who think you've got a book in you. <laughs> it's not just about sitting down on a Sunday afternoon and knocking out a few sentences. It's, it's about the hard yards, which I think everybody here has, has worked their way through. So, 
with this far, this much behind you, what comes next? Lucy, do you want to start us off? Oh, <laughs> what Does coincidence? My deadline's Monday. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing sitting here enjoying yourself, for <laughs> yeah. God's sake? <laughs> and I am proud to say I'm going to make it. Um, well, I've actually been through one set of edits already on my new book, um, and uh, we're, we're pro- there'll probably be another round of that. But um, yeah, it's it's scarily they've already put the public set the publication date for uh, for April next year. Um, so I. I don't know whether could I tell you a bit about it or, or yeah, she can tell us about it. Okay, it's, right. it's set at Bletchley Park. Nobody'll um, smack you. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, it's set at Bletchley Park. It's about a codebreaker who has her own um, kind of mystery to solve, her own personal mystery to solve. So we're doing a bit of research into, well, quite a lot of research into the 1940s um, and uh, in wartime, and that was very interesting. Very different period of time. Um, felt very different to be researching that period compared to the kind of vibrancy of the Edwardian era. So, um, but I, but yeah. I had a, a lot of fun doing it, and um, and yeah, fingers crossed, all go all go well for this round of edits, because like <laughs> you say, it's the, har- the hard work. <laughs> yeah, um, to not not return to Frankie. I would like to at some point. I mean, um, I did actually pitch that as a second book, as a follow-up book, and um, yeah, my editor I think was kind of keen to sort of see how how Frankie did on her own first. And mm. uh, but yeah, no, I would love to write Frankie again. I really yeah. enjoyed writing her as a character, um, and also of various other characters in the book that I just got really into. Where I sort of thought, oh, I could I could just do spin-offs. So the Twinkle is a really fun character yeah. to write. Um, uh, so so yeah, no, I I would love to maybe in the future. Yeah, I think one of the joys of of, of crime fiction now has become the, the fact that. Following the example of Ruth Wendell, you can write different kinds of books. You can you can have series characters and standalones, and still take your readers with you, which I think is a, a source of, of great uh, great optimism for writers. It's certainly mm. something that's that's kept me going. Claire, what about you? What's so I'm um, on yeah writing the first draft of my next book, um, which is set in London. So I found it very easy to to write the last book in terms of the police because it was a sort of forced setting that, that I knew about. This one's in the Metropolitan Police, which isn't an area I've worked in before, so I'm spending a lot of time in London. And it's about um, the fact that when we do the same things every day, when you, you get on the same carriage and you always stand in the same place, don't you, and try and sit in the same seat, and we do these things all the time, every day, and if we're doing them every day um, and we know what we're doing then someone else probably knows what we're doing as well <laughs> so it's about that <laughs> just think about that on Monday morning <laughs> <laughs> excellent Ben what's going um, well until I rewrite it it's a novel about a family at war <laughs> with itself again um, it's about an inheritance that goes very badly wrong it's set between Scotland and London uh, with a little bit of America, I think, but I expect there'll be another four drafts before I'm anywhere near finished it. So. Good luck with that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Rene? I've, um, well, I've just finished adapting the book for, hopefully that'll be it for a bit, uh, for the film, and then I've just adapted actually my, the first script I ever wrote I've turned into a sort of longish short story, and I'm plotting out the second novel. I haven't actually started. Well, could you hurry up, please, because we're all waiting. (laughs) (laughs) So, so it's... uh, (laughs) No pressure or anything, you know. I I often say to people, you know, write your second novel before you submit your first one. Well, that's what, exactly, I have been told that. Anyway, it's too late for that. Uh, um, So, I've I've, uh, I've had my say now. It's uh, it's over to you guys in the audience. Uh, We have got roving mics uh, for the questions you would like to ask. 
Uh, so if you have got a question, if you can stick your hand up and wait for the mic to come to you. Uh, excellent. Someone's got their hand up already, which is good because that saves me having to pick on people at random. <laughs> I, I, I read um, the, I let you go, that uh, Claire, Claire did, and I've, I've got to say, I've, I've read a lot of crime because that's, that's my thing, and I thought that this was just absolutely fantastic. Um, the The twist in the middle it just absolutely floors you, and I have to say, I got to there, because I, I normally, you know, without blowing my own trumpet, work it out somewhere about three quarters of the way through and feel really good about that. I got to the end of part one, and I went, how the hell did I miss that? <laughs> And then I started going back through the first part to work out how the hell I'd missed that and realised that, no, I'd really, I had absolutely missed it. Then started on part two, hoping that the explanation would be revealed very quickly. And beg you, it wasn't. And I had to, <laughs> then at that point, like Val said, I, there was no way I could put it down. And I'm looking and I'm thinking, I hope there's nothing happening for the next few hours because I've got <laughs> to know why. And I, so I, I read it in under 24 hours. And I was really, really impressed. Loved it. Thank you very, very much. Um, without giving anything away, if you love crime fiction, you've got to read this book. Climbing, I didn't even pay her. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Well your, your, your check is in the post. <laughs> Hello, I read The Hourglass Factory. In fact, I looked at all four books and couldn't make up my mind between which ones, and I downloaded samples of each and never got around to reading the samples. So I bought the two books. I bought Let You Go and I bought The Hourglass Factory. Um, and I gave Jane the, Hourglass, uh, the, the Let You Go one and I read this one. Um, I would recommend this to people. I am very interested in the suffragette movement. I did a, a special study at it at college. And I think people need to know more about the suffragettes and they need to know more about what is underneath it because the suffragette movement does have this iconic kind of thing. Now, to take that subject and then weave around it your crime novel was excellently done. I also think your characters, each and every one of them, sta are standout characters. You mentioned Twinkle. I can see her perfectly. I do like, particularly, Millicent and her dual life, and I admire her tremendously. I also think that the way in which you weave it, because sometimes it gets a bit confusing. I had to keep sort of thinking, did I, miss, did I miss something? Did that happen? Who's that character? Because there are so many. And I think at first I was a bit irritated by that. And then I realised that that's life. You know, they come and they go. They, they're there for a moment. Then they're not there. Then you've got to get them back again. Um, so what I would say to people if they're going to read this is that if you've done a lot of research, congratulations, it's brilliant, but I think people should go away and do some of their own research. So although it's entertaining at one level, it's very thought-provoking at another level. So it hits all the boxes for me because I'm not a crime novel person. I read it for other reasons. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Does anyone have a question? <laughs> <laughs>
always great hearing what readers think. Seriously, it is. It's things that keep you going on the cold, dark nights. Um, I have a question for Rene, um, whose book I read and loved. Um, uh, and it does that fantastic thing of um, fulfilling the promise of that fantastic opening um, couple of pages where you are completely drawn into it. And uh, it's, I, think it's very, I think it's incredibly difficult for any crime writer to sustain that kind of promise. But you more than sustained it and pay it off at the end so that it's never any sense of anticlimax, quite the opposite. So my question is, um, how much did you uh, plan in advance and how much grew organically during the writing process? Well, I did plan, I did plot out beginning, middle and end in a kind of loose three-act structure. Um, and I knew what... I knew what the middle was. I always knew where I was heading, and I had worked out an end, but I did change it, actually. When I got halfway through, I came up with um, something else, actually, which is revealed further on. So I sort of went... Partly it's confidence, it's partly knowing where... I needed to know where I was going, but I also hoped along the way that I would come up with better ideas as I was going along, which I think I did. Um, so, yes, I did plot it out fairly carefully, but was prepared to throw stuff away as I as I went through, if I came up with something which I thought was better. Thank you. <laughs> how about the others? Did you, did you plan, or how, how closely did you plan ahead when you were doing that first draft? When all I knew at the beginning really was the end. <laughs> and so then I had to find a structure that fitted that. But then I, I wrote this throwaway throw line at the end of the second act, because again, it was divided into three acts, I suppose, the book. And I, write this, I wrote this throwaway line and it just suddenly changed everything that happened after that point, you know, because I kept coming back to it and thinking, yeah, actually, that's better. So I think you just have to be prepared to tear mm -hmm. it up and mm -hmm. go with what works. But I think that if I hadn't done the work in the first place, if I hadn't actually quite intricately plotted the whole thing and kept doing that, I wouldn't have got to that point. I think you have to do the, the boring workaday stuff in order for those yeah. moments to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. So you have something to throw away, actually, yes. for me, yeah. anyway. Yeah. How about you guys? Yeah, no, I, I did try to plan the, the structure very carefully through this, but um, I, I'm a bit of a magpie, you know, it's like when I go to charity shops or, or antiques fairs or anything like this, you know, I love picking up objects and throwing them in, and I, do, I think that's a fair comment, there is a lot of stuff in the book, and you know, you should see my bedroom. <laughs> you know, I just, I, so a lot of stuff got kind of, I did, I did make a plan, but a lot of stuff got thrown in there that just sparked my interest and just had to go in. Bright, shiny things. Shine, exactly, shiny things. I love the shiny things. <laughs> I do, yeah, I, I, I do plot out, um, but but again, things change. So with uh, I let you go, it was it was all about this this central uh, twist that happens, and so it was sort of a slightly odd process of them working out from the middle rather than in a, a more linear way. But I didn't know the ending, and there were a few sort of extra twists and turns that that surprised even me. Yeah. So, we've got time, I think, for one, maybe two questions before we go to the signing tent. There's one over here. And if you haven't got these books already, by the way, I suggest you go and get them now. Because, you know, in the years to come, you'll be going like, I should have bought that first novel at the time. <laughs> then my signed collection would be complete. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, um, you've all had great success with your first novels, and um, does that make it really difficult to write a second? Are you worried about replicating that magic formula? It's really easy. We're really confident now about our second novels. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I had a really great editor who um, told me that I absolutely must, had to, get my first draft of uh, my second novel written before The Hourglass Factory came out. And then when I'd only got to half of it and it was ready to tell her, I'm sorry, I'm not half of it. She was like, oh, nobody ever actually does that. So, but no, I, but actually I think that was a very, very sensible thing because I think I would have really struggled to start it. Uh, uh, to start, I mean, I, I did have to keep writing it while I was doing um, promotional stuff for The Hourglass Factory. Um, and that was quite weird because it was flipping between two time periods. Mm -hmm. But, um, but to, I, I don't think I would have been able to actually start it. I think I would have been, um, yeah, a bit too sort of... I don't know, it's not scared or intimidated. I, I don't know, just a bit too uh, brain-muddled, I think, probably, mm. to actually start it after Hourglass Factory had come out. So it was very, very wise advice. I'm surprised you weren't scared. I, I find that whole thing absolutely terrifying second time round, actually, because it's completely different, because you're... You're not sitting on your own. Not I, I told no one when I was writing the first novel, apart from Charlotta. She was the only person who knew. And I didn't start telling people until I got just about the beginning of a first draft done, because I just thought, I don't want to be the person who's writing a novel that never appears. And, you know, so the pressure on the second novel is a very different kind of thing, I think, because suddenly, you know, everyone knows that that's what you're doing, and that's when people ask you about it, and you're supposed to come up with a confident response. And I never have that confident response. It's going great. I mean, I, you know... Now that I'm nearly through my first draft, I'm happy to talk about it. You know, there's something there, I think. But um, I find the whole thing terrifying. Yeah, yes. It doesn't get any easier, the fact that you <laughs> feel any better. You know, it's, still, it's still terrifying. See, I find that a great comfort, yeah, I do actually, too. that it doesn't get easier. Yeah. I when, I was, when I was a baby writer, I met, I met Ruth Rendell uh, very early in my career. And after I'd done the... Oh, I love your books. You're wonderful. You're an inspiration. And I did the whole fangirl thing. I thought, what on earth do I say now? What do I say now? And, and I said, um, I said, I, I suppose when you've written as many books as you have, it gets easier. And she looked at me as if I was rather slow and stupid and said, <laughs> very politely, no, dear, it gets harder. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't understand what she meant at the time, but boy, I understand it now. <laughs> so don't worry if you're... I get it's, it's finding the, the pleasure, isn't it, in it yeah. again. I think for me it feels like I've got to get back to that place I was in mm -hmm. before, so I completely understand how you can't... It's quite hard mm -hmm. to get back into that place when you're busy, you know, promoting mm -hmm. another book. And it's just being sort of left to get on with it, really, is yeah. the way, you know. I, I often think the, the most pleasurable bit is the joy at the end of the day. I've done for today. <laughs> <laughs> Having written is always much more fun than writing. <laughs> <laughs> So, on that cheerful note, <laughs> wind up, we're going to go down to the, the signing tent where these wonderful writers will be signing their first novels for you. Um, I will also be there if anyone wants anything signed. Um, and um, could you just please let us um, out first so that we can get to the tent before you all flood out? And there's one other, one other announcement to make, and that's at, at 2 o'clock this afternoon in the signing tent, Sarah Hillary will be signing her Theakston Prize winning novel. Uh, so if you want Sarah to sign that, or her, I think her new book as well, um, please uh, go, go to the signing tent at two o'clock where she will be signing. Thank you very much. Let's for this. Thank you for listening to this event by Harrogate International Festivals. For more events, recordings, resources, and information about our arts charity, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.